It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. Now, I'd like to welcome our first guest to the show, and it's a pleasure to have uh, Timothy Andrews Sale. He is the Assistant Professor at the Department of History and Director of International Relations Program at University of Toronto. And he is here to uh, uh, share some light, talk to us, and, uh, and just tell us a little bit more about many of the things that we've been hearing about, it, and of course the unfortunate incident that has happened uh, with the Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian airline that has been downed in, uh, outside of Tehran. And uh, he is someone that uh, has a somewhat, uh, somewhat of an expertise in this area. So, uh, Timothy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here today. It's our pleasure, as we, uh, as we ta- alluded to earlier. Now, uh, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, it's, is it Tim or Timothy? Which do you prefer? Tim's great. Tim, which, wh- what do you think? Where should we start with this? Of course, we know this, this ongoing issue with the, especially now that we've, we've heard about the plane, we know what happened to it. Uh, Iran has uh, now admitted that it was downed accidentally and it's being looked at, but there's the fallout from that, pardon the pun there, but with, with all of the, the families now having to deal with trying to get their loved ones home, the, the remains of their loved ones, and bring them back, and the, just the political things that are just keep rolling out about this. And, and uh, even though it looks like Canada is getting somewhat... Uh, of support, at least from some from Iran, in terms of being able to get in to look at the situation, get a hold of the black boxes, and help with the analysis of that. Uh, what do you see as some of the challenges as we move forward on this? Well, I think there are going to be real challenges for the government of Canada. I mean, the government has come out very strongly at home in Canada with major public events and speeches, really speaking to Canadians about this tragedy, and I think that's been important. But behind the scenes, there are all sorts of efforts um, going on, both with other countries who have lost people on this airplane and then in dealing with Iran itself. And that situation's moving so quickly. I think there are real questions as to whether the Canadian request for a full investigation will happen. It seems like an investigation would get into some really important and secret parts of what happens in Iran. So that's a major question. We have these issues about the return of bodies. There'll be careful negotiations there, and that will be a real sticking point. And even the issue of compensation is going to be complicated. In other instances of airliners being shot down, it's taken sometimes eight years for Mm -hmm. families to be compensated. I think the government of Canada is recognizing the challenges and is even suggesting they might compensate victims first and then pursue their own claims against Iran. Uh, do you see that as a likely scenario at this point in time? The government of Canada yeah. making the payments? I do think that is uh, likely. I think that it meets the government's um, goals and needs to show that they're responsive to Canadians in this situation and makes a lot of sense. And I'm also very skeptical that there will be a full investigation that Iran will ever allow information to be released to the point that a, an investigation can be said. I would expect, actually, that the Iranians might try to move more quickly to compensation in hoping to avoid an investigation into the details of what actually happened in Iran that night. Now, without uh, shifting uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the focus there too much, but um, it, it sounds like if Canada were to compensate those people, that would also help with, with them in terms of 
all the other things they have to deal with. That would take one thing off their plate that they wouldn't necessarily have to focus on. I think that's right. There are a lot of moving pieces here. If we remember, the government is concerned about these Canadians and Canadian families, concerned about their relationships with Iran and these negotiations. But also, we can't forget there are hundreds of Canadian troops in the region. The government is trying to make a decision as to what those troops will do and see what will influence that. And then in the background, looming this major question about a showdown between the United States, Europe, and Iran over the nuclear program. So there are a lot a lot of things going on. Yeah, that's, that's of course, there, there are those things uh, that we I want to try and get to if we can. However, um, what would you say the situation is uh, immediately in terms of, because we don't have any diplomatic relations, we are seeing some success there right now, but uh, do you see some areas that might fall into uh, some, some, some uh, problems in terms of as we, as we roll through this? That's right. The lack of diplomatic relations in the first place meant that Canada had a lot of catch-up to do in getting visas for investigators and consular officials to get into Iran to start helping with the people on the ground who had suffered and to start um, trying to join this investigation. Um, That said, uh, in the first few days after the crash, I know there was frustration in Canada that it was taking a while for those visas to be processed, but now the Canadians are on uh, the ground there. Um, So they're able to make a difference. I think that Canada has caught up. One of the main sticking points, I think, though, is going to be the issue of the bodies and of the families in Iran, uh, because Iran doesn't recognize dual citizenship. Yes. So a lot of these individuals uh, that, that were lost to us, uh, we consider Canadians, they considered themselves Canadians, and we're legally Canadians, but they weren't in Iran's eyes. And so that's going to be a major sticking point. That's not just about this crash. That's about Iran's sort of general policy about who belongs within its state. Now, it, it, last I heard, I, I remember uh, hearing that there were only three Canadians that I believe that they recognized. So it's a very small number, yeah. a very, very small number of the total. Yeah, and of course, I'm sure that doesn't help uh, in terms of any of these these families and relatives that are dealing with, with trying to get some, some resolution to all of this as well. No, that's right, and we were seeing reports um, and reports that have been acknowledged by Global Affairs Canada of some people in Iran actually facing, uh, you know, it could be called harassment and that they're not, uh, they're being encouraged strongly, strong-armed not to speak out about the crisis. Uh, this crisis is a tragedy, absolutely, but it's also a major problem for the Iranian regime. Yeah. Now, uh, I heard the same thing about uh, the, that some people who had uh, uh, had gone, uh, some of their stories had gone viral. They'd had some uh, some visits from the regime asking them not to do this, to, to uh, mourn in, uh, privately, uh, to not make a fuss, and actually to still praise the regime, even in light of, of what this, uh, this has happened, this, this event and, and an unfortunate downing by accident of the plane. That's right, but it creates or there's a very difficult situation for the Iranian regime here because if they are requesting these people that were killed to be acknowledged only as Iranians, the Iranian government then still shot down its own citizens. Exactly. And so it's a very yeah. difficult spot. Yeah. Um, now, the other thing, of course, that, that we talked about is this, this, whole, uh, this whole thing about the nuclear you know, uh, situation and what's going on. And, and, and of course, I think one of the last things I heard uh, or saw today was that uh, uh, the, uh, 
that the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, uh, issued some veiled threat about the, the U.S. troops and, and that they are creating un, an unsettled situation and they should be removed from the situation. Not only are they uh, possibly threatened, but there there's could be, they could, they could be in harm's way or something like that. That's right. Yes. I mean, th- there's obviously tensions between Iran and U.S. troops. But yesterday, President Rouhani made this veiled threat against European troops. And he said that even European troops mm-hmm. could come uh, under attack, perhaps. Uh, and this is really striking and strident language. It's connected to and the result of news that three European powers would be initiating a dispute resolution mechanism as part of the nuclear deal. That would mean sanctions on Iran and very bad news for the Iranian regime. So it's bad news for Iran, of course, but the idea of taking that one step further and responding by threatening European soldiers is a very strong statement. Um, And I think it suggests the real pressure the Iranian regime is under. That one part of the press conference got a lot of news, uh, the attack on possible uh, threat to European soldiers. But the president also did make an interesting statement that the changes in the Iranian nuclear program were not irreversible or that they were reversible. And yet today, just one day later, the Iranians are saying they're enriching more uranium than ever before. So it's a very complex situation in which the Iranians are, I think, giving signals that there could be a way out of this, at the same time making very strong statements. Yeah, and uh, wasn't wasn't there also some comment made by them to say that they could go back to the two thousand fifteen agreement if the U.S. also agreed to do so or something like that? Yeah, that's right. Well, I think that that is the hope of uh, I think the Iranians and the Europeans in two thousand and fourteen when the uh, Obama administration uh, encouraged others to put these enormous sanctions on Iran. It brought Iran to the negotiating table, and we had this nuclear deal. Of course, in the meantime, President Trump has withdrawn from that deal. Now I think many players are hoping to get back to that deal. And I wonder if the president ultimately is going to conclude that, yes, going back to where the U.S. was uh, previously is in his best interest. He'll just call it something else, like he did with NAFTA. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, Now, can we talk about Iran for a second? Absolutely. Can you tell us something about Iran? How is with all the sanctions and things against Iran that have been placed in there to try to get them to, uh, you know, uh, turn around and come to the table, sort of, so to speak. Uh, how are they economically? You know, are they, are, you know, they're an oil-rich country, a country, I believe? Well, that's right. Um, an oil-rich country. Um, and that's why these sanctions that began in 2014 had such an effect on the Iranian economy. It had real pressure real pressure on what the government could provide to its people and also whether the government of Iran could even continue to arm itself, uh, etc. And so that pressure on the Iranian economy can be increased so tightly by sanctions that Iran, after the nuclear deal in 2015, really could breathe a sigh of relief and its economy um, was doing better, the government was doing better. President Trump pulling out of the deal and putting sanctions back on Iran is now affecting the Iranian economy. It is putting pressure on Iran, and we've seen Iran lash out as a response, um, attacking Saudi Arabian oil facilities, shooting down an American drone, for instance. So the Iranian regime now isn't suffering as much as it was in 2014, but is doing worse than it did under the 
nuclear deal when the American sanctions had been lifted. So it's in the middle of a middle ground right now. And that's why this threat of European sanctions is really so critical to them. Now, the other thing is, of course, that the U.S. and Iran have not had a diplomatic uh, 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 relationship since about the 1980s, I believe. That's right. We can go back to the 1979 hostage crisis, of course, when American diplomats were um, kidnapped or taken hostage by uh, Iranian revolutionaries. The relationship between these two countries has been enormously fraught since then. But it's not only the lack of diplomatic relations. In fact, um, there's been real combat and and fighting between these countries in sort of the the shadows of the region. And even uh, the general, Qasem Soleimani, who was killed, um, was known by Americans to be behind attacks on American troops in Iraq after the American invasion of Iraq. So really strained relations between these countries. It's not only the lack of diplomacy, but really active um, competition in the region. Mm. I'd just like to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Timothy Andrews Sale. He is an assistant professor and uh, at the Department of History and Director of International Relations Program at the University of Toronto. It's a pleasure to have him here with us today on Moment of Truth. How does this strain in the Middle East, in light of what has happened with uh, the downing of the plane, and, and now with Canadian citizens being uh, uh, killed on that plane. How does this now affect Canada in terms of the tensions between us north and south of the border? Because it seems like there is some tension starting to mount there. I think that's right. I think there are real tensions here that will have both short-term and long-term effects on the U.S.-Canada relationship. I mean, the first one is that in despite of this enormous tragedy, not only have Americans as a country seem to have moved on from this tragedy with the impeachment crisis and everything that's in the news in the U.S., but to my knowledge, there's been no condolences from the president of the United States after Mm -hmm. a really tragic loss of life. So just on a personal or human level, there's something lacking there. It's also striking, I think, that we see the Canadian foreign minister meeting with other foreign ministers and handling this uh, crisis publicly, the total absence of the United States. Now, that makes sense. There were no U.S. citizens killed. But here is Canada facing a major international event and not doing it with a traditional partner, the U.S. But I think there's more to it. There's more underlying the issues here. And that is how much Canada can really rely on the United States as an ally and as a partner. These countries are linked, of course, but the events, the shooting down of the airliner, while absolutely an Iranian decision or mistake that that resulted in that, of course, tensions were so high in the region because of some really questionable U.S. decisions and U.S. decisions that were not accompanied by an alert or information to Canadian troops in the region. So, How are Canadian troops in the region going to be affected by American policy? How is NATO, of which Canada is a member, going to be affected by this crisis with the president calling on NATO to take a more active role in the Middle East? And how much can we really, can Ottawa trust Washington to meet future crises together? You know, um, since uh, the election of of President Trump, something my own personal observation was that uh, what you see is what you get with President Trump. That's my own sense of of him. And uh, 
he he's a guy that uh, is pretty straightforward. You know, I, I think you can you can read him fairly easily. But he, he's also to me uh, somewhat of a magician. Uh, he he'll he has you looking at this hand, but the hand behind his back is doing something completely different. And he's always seems to be one step ahead of of knowing what's going on. That's at least what I see. And and it seems that now the situation is we have a we have a especially in light of Canada, or pardon me, with the United States and China now coming to a trade agreement in the first phase. Uh, it seems that Canada might, might fall short in that. We don't know what the fallout is, but with the, the, the U.S. getting uh, more, more, I think it's agricultural purchases that are going to China, that may affect us. We have the situation with, uh, with Huawei, and that's still playing out. But all of these things seem to be putting Canada in somewhat of a, of a weaker position, I believe. And now you're talking, you said he hasn't come forward, he hasn't is issued any condolences. And uh, uh, Trump, uh, to me, seems like, and he has said this, U.S. first. He's always U.S. first. And, and I think anyone else, it seems, is, uh, is not important enough to, to you know, it's, Can it's USA, and we'll take care of us, and you guys take care of yourselves. That's the way it is. And it seems like that's how it's rolling out. I think that that's a really excellent way of putting it, and I think that's right. And it's hard for us to adjust to that. Because so many of our foreign policies in the last decades have rested on the idea of allies or even just other states working together and trying to build a better world or trying to create situations that advantage a number of different players. One example here would be the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal was floated uh, during the Obama years to try and create trade with Asia that would benefit a number of players, both in Asia and in North America, of course. And that has been ended. And now we see... President Trump going after a trade deal with Asia, but it's a United States trade deal. It is not one that brings in partners. In the Iranian case, we see a really good example of what happens behind the scenes. Uh, we're just seeing reporting um, yesterday that the president threatened to put a tariff on European auto exports to the United States if they did not impose these dispute mechanisms against Iran. Well, the Europeans were already going to impose those mechanisms, and this extortionist threat from the president caused them almost not to take <laughs> that step because they didn't want mm. to be bullied by mm -hmm. it. Mm. So how much of this goes on behind the scenes between mm. Washington and Ottawa? I think we should be worried uh, about the, the enormous economic leverage the president has over Canadian decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, uh, coming back as we look to uh, to Iran in the Middle East, the U.S. Pre U.S. presence, and as you mentioned earlier, the the European presence. Um, do you see any movement on that in terms of what the Iranian president is asking about, and in terms of the 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 the, the forces being pulled out? I really don't see the Europeans or the Canadians withdrawing forces as a result of this Iranian threat. It would just look too much like giving in to blackmail. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, we'll see a strong diplomatic push behind the scenes. But it's important to remember that the Canadian troops and the European troops that are in the region, that are in Iraq, but also Lebanon, Jordan, and Kuwait, were there initially to combat ISIS and to train Iraqi and regional security forces to combat ISIS. And this is something that actually the Europeans, the Americans, the Canadians, and the Iranians all had in common. Mm. They wanted to see the end of ISIS. Now that ISIS is much less of a threat, we have to recognize that what those Canadian and NATO forces in, in Iraq are doing is strengthening Iraq. It's making Iraq stronger. And Iraq, uh, 
you know, a complicated history in the region, but an, an enemy at times, a, a major war in the 1980s with mm-hmm. Iran. So we see that the Iranians probably are less keen on seeing those troops there making their neighbors stronger. Um, so the other thing uh, that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm not sure if, if you can ad- address this, but uh, there's the concern about the, the, the downed plane and, the, and even the, f- the flight path that it was taking. And, and that's only started, I think, to, to be discussed. I've heard a couple of, of uh, concerned citizens mention the same thing about why was the plane even there? Yeah, it's, this is a really complex issue, and these, I think, are the questions that the Iranian government would not like to have aired publicly. I can see a few different things, a few different scenarios that led to the plane flying and being shot down. The Iranian Aerospace Defense Commander actually came out and suggested or said that he had requested airspace to be closed and that it wasn't. Mm. There's also this question of how do you mistake an airliner for a cruise missile? Mm. At what level is the decision made to shoot down that airplane? So a number of questions. Was this just a mistake by the Aerospace Defense Command revealing that Iran cannot defend its own airspace? Or was this a conscious decision by the Iranian leadership to leave civilian airspace open that night to try and discourage American retaliation? I think it it asks major questions about Iran, but it also asks questions even about the airlines, uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization. I mean, if there are ballistic missiles being fired in a region, you would think or you would hope that there will be a number of people deciding or advising that civilian airliners shouldn't be flying at that time. It just mm-hmm. doesn't make sense to mm-hmm. me. As you look uh, to the future, uh, what, what flags are going off for you? What, what big concerns, other than what we've discussed already, are... are, are you know, are, are issues for you? Well, my, my major concern here is a mistake. Mm. And by that, I mean an, a mistake, especially by the Iranians uh, in which an American is killed. Um, the night that the plane was shot down, the night that the Iranians attacked Iraq, if you recall, the, there was all sorts of news out of the White House that the president was going to go on TV. We all expected that would be the announcement of military operations against Iran. And cooler heads prevailed. He did not obviously go forward with that. And I think that's because an American was not killed that night. If there is a crisis in Iraq, a riot, a rocket attack in which Americans are killed, I can see this escalating dramatically. And the problem with escalation in the relationship between the United States and Iran is that they're not the only states in the region. They're not the only states in the world. And as we've seen with the airliner, all sorts of innocent people can get caught up in this. So mistakes are worrying. Uh, My hope is that this crisis is going to focus a number of different players to recognize that diplomacy and coming to some sort of agreement uh, on the nuclear file, on regional issues, can take some of the tension down in the region. Having said that, uh, what is your sense, if I may ask, of what we've seen from President Trump in terms of his dealing not only with uh, his allies, uh, such as Canada, as we've discussed, but in terms of how far and how how far you think he might push this. Yeah, that's. I think that's a that's a key. So there is pressure on Iran, and it is enormous pressure. And with European sanctions, it could be existential pressure for the regime. So there will be pressure on the regime. That's President Trump's policy: a policy of maximum pressure. But if you're applying maximum pressure 
to something, to someone, there needs to be an escape valve. Mm -hmm. There needs to be an off-road, somewhere to let the steam out. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is that the Americans, the president or his advisors have thought of this, that they at least have a way of applying this pressure and then having a way of channeling the energy in the region into something positive. And that may sound too optimistic, but as we were saying before about the president, he's interested in what's best for him. And I really do think that he believes appearing as a peacemaker, as the man who could bring peace to this region, to this crisis, is the best thing for him. And if he has to create chaos and create a problem to ultimately solve it, I think he'll do that because in the end, he'll be able to portray himself as really a visionary leader. Mm. I, I hear what you're saying there. Um, now, uh, again, going back to, to uh, you know, how, how, how far he might, he might push that, uh, I, I guess that's, that's the game he does play, like you said, and that pressure valve that needs to be released is, is I guess, the, the concern for me as yes. I think about this. Yes. Is, is he going to give that that valve somewhere for it to be released or just push them so hard that there is no nowhere to go. Um, and, and that's, a, I guess, the big concern, right? Um, but, but I guess the other thing is about this and what has played out, especially since the, uh, uh, since the, 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 um, the, the killing of the, uh, the general. Yes. Um, is that I, I thought Trump played this very coolly in, in, in sort of, in an ironic way that he normally deals with these situations. Does that, do you know what I'm talking about there? Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, it was a peculiar moment in that this uh, strike was made. It killed Soleimani. It was set up in such a way, of course, that Soleimani was killed in Iraq. Scholars debate, different legal analysts debate whether it was legal or not, but I'm sure that the United States thinks it's legal. And the United States knew that Iran was going to respond in some way, and the Iranians thought they were responding in a way, I think, that could end the tit-for-tat escalation. Mm. So those attacks that did not kill any Americans uh, allowed the president to, in a tweet, say, all is well, mm. no Americans have been killed. Um, you know, in a way, he could sort of mock the Iranians while the Iranians could turn to their people and say we've struck back, we've achieved revenge. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, you know, the an almost ideal moment to leave this crisis. Of course, though, it was that same night and as a result of those actions that the airliner was shot down. Um, what is the president after? And, and, and the coolness is a part of this. The one bit of evidence I have, we have, that, that there is a, a, an optimistic solution here is the president's dealing with North Korea. Again, the president putting pressure on North Korea over its nuclear program, threatening North Korea. But what did he want? He wanted that photo opportunity with the North Korean leader, and he got it. And if the United States can put enough pressure on Iran to bring Iranian diplomats to the table, I mean, I think there's nothing more the president would like than, would, than to meet with the Iranian president. That would be his mm. towering achievement. Mm. Uh, Tim, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and and I greatly appreciate you you coming on to share your thoughts and and uh, and, and uh, expertise with us. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here, as I said, uh, even though it is an unfortunate situation that we're having to talk about. But I certainly hope that you'll keep the door open for us to have you back, so that we can get updates and and get your sense of things as we move forward on these issues. I'd like that a lot, David. Thank you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. My guest has been Timothy Andrews Sale. He is the assistant professor at the Department of History and director of international relations, 
program at the University of Toronto. You're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. But of course, we will have more for you coming up. So please do stick around right after this on Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. And that, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. You can also download the Radio Player Canada app. And if you do so, type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. And you could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show and also welcome him back to the show. It's been, uh, I guess, about a year or so since Mr. Paul Nadeau has been on the show. And it was a pleasure to have him at that time. And it's a pleasure to have him back. He's the author of Take Control of Your Life. And I understand he's working on another book, if I'm not mistaken. Paul, welcome back. Well, thank you very much, David. It's great to be back. And yes, uh, uh, Harper Collins have asked me to write a book on negotiations and Mm. asking. Uh, And really, it's, it's a book that's going to benefit everyone because it's a simple principle that I've developed on how to get more out of life by simply asking, you know, Mm. by building a foundation Mm. and asking for what you want. Wouldn't that be nice if we did a little more of that all the way around the world, especially in today's world? Absolutely. There are so many opportunities out there that people miss, you Mm. know, because they don't uh, develop or or establish a relationship with Mm. someone Mm. or or they're afraid to ask for what they want, you know, whether it's help, whether it's, uh, you know, guidance, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a retail thing. We, uh, Mm. We sometimes fail to ask for certain things because we don't know how to ask. Assumptions and stereotypes come to mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and and fear. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. fear is a, is something that uh, prevents us from moving forward in so many aspects of our life, isn't it? You know, uh, I'm glad you brought up that word fear because it is something that you deal with in your, your first book that we uh, opened the show with, Taking Control of Your Life. And uh, your, your uh, life experience uh, has had you deal a lot with fear in, in so many different ways, personally, as well as the fear of others and people that are, f- are put into fearful situations. And that fear, as you explore in your book, uh, and because of the, the, the world that you have been uh, exposed to uh, in your previous uh, work as, as a police officer, as a negotiator, uh, and, and, and a peacekeeper that you have been involved with in, in Iran and other places around the world that put you in that frontline position of having to see that look in people's eyes. Am I not mistaken? No, that? you are 100% right, David. Um, you know, fear is a four-letter word, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we associate four-letter words sometimes to uh, some pretty awful things. Mm-hmm. Fear is one of the worst. And uh, it is something that can immobilize you to the point where you feel uh, incapable of moving forward no matter what the circumstances are. And we all know that we are sometimes faced with, uh, with circumstances, events, <clears throat> that we need to move forward uh, because not doing so will harm us or may harm us or someone else. So dealing with fear is something that we all have to do. And uh, I, I explain uh, in many ways in my book on how to do that. One of the first things that you have to, uh, to deal with when you are working with fear is the fact that in most cases, your fear is unjustified. You know, sometimes 90% of what we worry about or we fear will never materialize. So we have to 
understand that, that we can work past fear. And the more we do it, the easier it becomes. Was I afraid when I went to the Middle East? Yeah, I thought I was going to get killed. You know, I almost did get killed, as you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it didn't prevent me from doing it. Um, not everybody will do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for our day-to-day circumstances, dealing with fear is essential mm-hmm. in order to grow and in order to move. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting in what you said there about, about uh, were you afraid for your life? Yes. Uh, but it didn't stop you from doing it. But, but I guess what's interesting about fear is, one, it is something that we create in our own minds. And as you say, in many instances, it never materializes, the f- things we are f- afraid of. But it is the thing that stops us before we even get out the gate. And it's our own mind doing that to us. But even though we are creating it in our minds, so it is not something that is physically real, but in many senses it's more than physically real because it's, it's so real in our mind. Um, but, in, but because of that, uh, it, so it's, it's, it's worse in many ways because it's not like that brick wall in front of us. We created it. We can't see it. We can't touch it, much like love or, or any of those other things, the, uh, uh, hope, desire, uh, you know, those kind of things we can't see, but they're real as well. Yes. And because it is real, uh, that fear that you had going to the Middle East could be as, as fearful for someone of trying to take a new job on or because it could be that real to them. Precisely. Yeah. yeah, and I totally agree with you. It's something that we create, you know, in our minds. Uh, um, your example of, you know, maybe the job or whatever. You know, what if they say no? You know, mm-hmm. what if I'm rejected? Mm-hmm. You know, so what if they do? Right. What if you are rejected? Uh, you know, are you going to remain in a cage of your own making? Mm-hmm. And that's what it is, is we create this cage in our minds in which we say, okay, the worst could possibly happen where we should be saying, well, the best could possibly be happening because I'm going to make it happen. You know, and oftentimes uh, our fears are, they have no foundation, they have no basis other than the ones we create. But we have to look at the possibilities of what if I do this? What if I ask for that job or I ask for that, that person out for a date? You know, what is it that I can do, mm. you know, that might help me get beyond this mm-hmm. and take a risk? Because mm-hmm. life is risks. Right. You know, if right. we don't take them, we stay where we are. And, and fear is something that we can, you know, we can move beyond you know, 99% of the time, it's, it, there are some real risks out there. We know that. There are some things that you must fear, you mm-hmm. know. But do we allow that to cripple? You know, I hate to, to bring up the, the different terrorist attacks, mm-hmm. you know, that, that happen to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to people across mm-hmm. the world. But when one does happen, say, for example, in a theater uh, or somewhere else in the world, it's amazing how many people will say, well, I'm not going to a theater anymore. Right. You know, like uh, I'm afraid sure. to go to a nightclub. I'm mm-hmm. afraid to go here. They are crippled by the possibility of something happening. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that it, 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 it could? Yes, it is. Is it likely? No, it's not. Again, they are crippled by what they think might yes. happen as opposed yes. to what really might happen. Speaking of fear again, um, and, and I'm not sure if you can answer this question because it seems to me it's a, it's a big question. But in terms of, of fear, we all know how some of these things start. Uh, you know, we're, we, from day one, we're told, don't do this. Or, you know, uh, we, we, they're sort of, uh, you know, we're told by our parents, we're told by our school. We're, we're all, we're set up for that in many ways. 
But that's even in a healthy situation. But in many in many uh, situations uh, around the world, unfortunately, over over, over history, uh, people have been subjected to things that have put them in situations where they are not thought to be worthy. They're not thought to be given any choice, and so they they are fearful of even thinking in a free way. Mm-hmm. And I I think um, the way I look at it, David, there's uh, there's really three time zones uh, that uh, that we should be. Uh, aware of. There's the past, the present, and the future. The past, what happened five minutes ago, I cannot change. Mm. The future I can certainly plan for, but it is not guaranteed to me. The most important moment of my life is this present moment, the moment with you. You're the most important person in my life right now because now I have some influence over the circumstances. We both do. We, We can create something here. If we've been traumatized, victimized in our past and, uh, you know, told not to do certain things, that is the past. We cannot change it. But we can certainly look back at it and say, you know what, that wasn't my fault. You know, I was a victim or I was, you know, like subjected to this, but that wasn't my fault. And if it was, I can forgive myself and move forward. I can plan for the future, but I can make this moment the, the, the most amazing and fantastic moment and really appreciate and, and uh, you know, the, the, the wonders of this moment because I can. So in, on the one sense, that fear says, I can't, mm-hmm. I, I won't. And you're right. If you listen to that fear, you can't and you won't. Mm-hmm. But if you look at your present as being an empowering moment where you can make whatever decisions and choices you want because this moment is yours, that liberates you. I think that that liberates you. Okay, so, you know, uh, when when I knew you were coming in to do the show today, uh, I was very excited because uh, you and I share a certain amount of personal uh, similarity from our upbringing. And, I, you know, we connected on that level and we both had to rise above certain things. But, be, but there is, but that when you say I can, I can still remember in my own mind and I know p- some people are out there right now that might be listening saying, but I can't. I, I can't even get to say I can. You know, you know what I I'm do, saying? I do. I, I can't say I can. It's, it's scary to just say I can because I don't know if I can. <laughs> I, you know what I'm saying? It's, I, it's, and, and, and getting there, getting to that point is difficult for many people. But how do you, how do you try to reach people to get them to that point where, where they can get beyond that? For me, I think it's by being vulnerable myself, mm. by sharing my story. You know, uh, many of us, if we were more vulnerable with each other, if we shared our so- <laughs> stories and our experiences, mm. uh, we could really change uh, a person's outlook. Um, many people believe vulnerability or they associate it as a dark emotion you know weakness oh weakness it's it's fear it's weakness it's disappointment Mm. it's it's all this yet it is by being vulnerable that we truly connect with one another Mm. vulnerability is the gateway to love hope Mm. and and aspirations it Mm. is it is the bridge that takes us from from darkness to light let's be more vulnerable with each other and when you say it's difficult for people to say that I can, it is. It is because some people have gone through such uh, adversity and, uh, and setbacks. But 
again, you know, my message is that any kind of muscle that Mm -hmm. we build takes repetition Mm -hmm. and takes effort. Mm -hmm. And to remain uh, in a state where you say, I can't, I just can't possibly face this. Ask, reach out, you know, get the, you know, get somebody to help. Hopefully somebody will be vulnerable with you and and share their experiences with you. and, and, And you'll be able to say, Wow, I went through that too. And you did? You know, we don't feel alone then, Mm -hmm. you know? Knowing that somebody else has gone through the same kind of crap that we've gone through, Mm -hmm. I think empowers us to believe that maybe we can get through it too. You know, the other thing that comes to mind as you were talking there is, at least for myself, and maybe I'm sure you can identify with this, is that it's not only saying, it's not only being able to say I can, it's finding something that you can latch on to that, that feels real enough for you to say, ah, okay, this can help. This will give me the strength to at least crack open that door a little bit. Yes. You have to find something in your own personal life somewhere, somehow. Maybe it is getting assistance. Or, but, but at some point, you have to find something within yourself because nobody can, do, can, nobody can open that door for you. You have to do it yourself. You're right. And it's finding whatever that is Maybe it, I don't, I don't know, creativity comes to mind. For, for me, music was something that really helped me open that door. Um, so it's finding something, some little thing that you can do to just crack that door open a little bit that gives you that strength to at least, you know, move forward a little bit because that's all you have to do. You have to move forward in, in, in increments. You do, yeah. And I, I, you're absolutely right. Simply telling somebody, you know, to change their circumstances is not enough. They have to be willing to do it. Number one, yep. you have to be willing to make an effort to change your circumstances, change your environment. Sometimes it's a person's environment or it's a person's uh, – the people that surround them are sometimes very toxic, you know. So you really need to remove yourself from what it is that's holding you back or, or depressing you and go out uh, – it's, it's sunny today. You know, here we are, January, what, 19th or mm-hmm. something like that? And it's sunny in Toronto and mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Go out for a walk, appreciate, you know, um, take a look every day uh, what you're thankful for. You know, like what is it that you are thankful for today? What is it that you're thankful for in the last 20 minutes? You know, and it's not just, hey, I'm thankful for, uh, you know, my family, my daughters, you know, my health or whatever. That's nice, you know, but what about the last 20 minutes? You know, for me, I'm grateful to be here with you, having this conversation. This is what I'm grateful for. Mm. So we have to find different reasons why we're, great, why we're grateful. And then, yeah, find what it is that gives us joy and that gives us, uh, you know, a sense of belonging. You may be a gym, you know, going to a gym, going for mm. a walk in a, in, a, in a park, listening to that music, mm-hmm. removing yourself from your dark apartment and, and meeting new friends, going to social events, whatever it is, try something new. Really generate that because... Everybody has a flame in them, you know, I, and I remember uh, speaking this um, about this at the Canadian Mental Health Association, their last um, uh, big event. They asked me to be a keynote speaker. And Leonard Cohen, mm. uh, you know, the, the late Leonard Cohen, such a great writer. Mm. In the 90s, he wrote a song called Anthem. And this is what he said in that song. There's a, there's a lyric in that song that just really moved me. He says, there's a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We are all cracked. We are all broken. But each and every one of us have a light within us. Mm. And again, I I go back to that vulnerability about sharing your your light. When I look back at my past, you know, like having been abused by by my father, told Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't amount to anything. I look back at that and I say, you know what? 
that's not something that happened to me. It's actually something that happened for me. Because mm. it had it not been for that, I never would have made the decision to become a police officer to help others. So I have to look at that event as maybe, yes, it was terrible to go through, but maybe it was something that empowered me, you know, to, to say that happened for me so that I could help others. I could be vulnerable and share that experience with other people, which helps me get through it. And it might help others who have experienced something like that as well. Mm. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. Much appreciated. Uh, just going to jump in and let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth, and I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Mr. Paul, Ma- Paul Nadeau. He is uh, the author of Take Control of Your Life. You can pick that up at uh, bookstores. Bookstores, Amazon, everywhere. Yeah, so keep uh, keep a look for that. And also keep uh, out uh, a look for uh, his next book that's going to be coming out, Negotiations? Or well, it's going to yeah. be on Negotiations? It, yeah, it, it's uh, it's negotiating and asking for what you want. Uh, mm. I gave it the title of Just Ask, you mm. know, uh, mm. and but I don't know what HarperCollins, yeah. uh, whether they're going right. to even, uh, you know, release right. it. But uh, <laughs> fingers crossed here, you know, like, gosh, I hope so. So they asked me to write it. They say, hey, Paul, could you write a book for mm-hmm. the uh, for the average person on how to negotiate and ask for things in life? And I said, sure, I can. So now they have it. It's up to them. Mm. And I'm just putting it out to the universe that it's going to happen again. Now, the other thing, of course, we mentioned earlier about uh, Paul is that uh, he, he also uh, does public speaking. Uh, he is a negotiator. He was He's a former police officer. Uh, he's worked in uh, hostage and crisis negotiations, de- domestic violence investigations and training, international peacekeeping and counter-terrorism, uh, homicide investigations, sexual assault and child abuse investigations, and professional I- interrogations and polygraphs. Yeah. So that's quite a bit that uh, you, have, you have worked with and through. Uh, so it gives him uh, a real hands-on uh, sense of things now, you, you you didn't professionally study uh, psychology or anything like that. I understand. You, no, I, this I, is real world world experience you're dealing it's, with. It's real world experience, but through the different courses that I've taken, I had to take university yep. psychology. Yep. Uh, you know, for uh, you know, for being a hostage negotiator, I mm-hmm. had to take some some uh, very intensive uh, courses, and I've learned from some of the top experts uh, in in a number of different fields. Um, in polygraph, I had to learn about human behavior and what uh, you know, how to approach people, how to get people to open up. Um, in hostage negotiations, it's the same. So I went through university courses mm-hmm. over a short period of time uh, to help me, and then it was that hands-on experience that you mentioned. Paul, why do you think that so many people are hampered by fear and not not following their dreams, not following through on things that can benefit themselves? in our society and around the world. I mean, if, if there, you know, you wouldn't be doing this <laughs> if there wasn't a need as many other people are because we're all in need of these things. And it's surprising to me still that, you know, how do we do this to ourselves, I guess, is the question. I'm, I don't know if you can answer that. but <laughs> I have my ideas on that. I, I, I think oftentimes we don't believe ourselves to be worthy of happiness. You know, mm. we, we feel like we're just a number uh, or we're just, you know, someone here uh, living, you know, not so great a human experience. Whereas if we step back and we think to ourselves that, you know, we are here because we are meant to be here and we have such, you know, uh, energy in us, if only we choose to to release it. A lot of people don't have the confidence in themselves, you know, or they're not encouraged. And... Th- Nobody is going to 
rescue you from a rock of solitude. If you think that you're going to be rescued by somebody, you're going to be waiting on that rock of solitude for a very long time. We have to be aware that we are worthy of doing you know, our very best and of experiencing the very best life that we possibly can. And I think a lot of what is happening out there is that people don't recognize that they are special, that mm. everybody here is special mm. and capable and worthy and loved. You know, I mean, gosh, they are love. You know, we're, we're these energetic little, you know, beings, you know, that are here to make the very best of our lives. But people don't recognize that they have the right to. You have the right to be happy, you mm. know, and you got to tell yourself that, you know, you got to believe it, you know. I, I do know. I'm, I can, you know, identify with this, as you know. <laughs> yes, I can. Um, now, you mentioned a couple of three key th- things there that I, that I think are, are important to mention again. Confidence, support, and worthiness. Now, uh, having the confidence, uh, again, uh, is something that many people lack. And it's, it goes back to, again, you know, the question of, of why, why do we lack that confidence in ourselves? To, to believe that, uh, because, you know, it, it's interesting. You mentioned everybody has a fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that's, maybe that's uh, uh, um, some people might say it's, you know, your, your passion, you know, whatever that may be. And people are afraid to follow through on that. But, I, you know, from my own experience, it's not something that always knocks you, you know, on the head. It's a very subtle mm-hmm. kind of a thing that's in the background. And it doesn't shout at you. You know, yeah. it's not a really loud voice sometimes. <laughs> right. And it's very quiet and you have to listen very closely in order to hear that. But you have to have the confidence to believe that that's being told to you for a reason that you mm-hmm. need to follow through on that. Mm-hmm. Now, you other, the other thing you said is that uh, this, this quiet solitude or, or whatever and the support. Now, support is key. You know, uh, I I know that from my own, again, experience in my early life about not having the support that was there and uh, wanting to follow through on some things and basically being told the opposite. What do you want to do that for? You you can't do that. Right. 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 And that didn't help any. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. And and it it doesn't, you know. Uh, But here's here's what has helped me. You know, I – I was always told, like yourself, we wouldn't amount to anything mm. and, and that, you know, why even try? Mm. You know, like, you're, you're never going to be happy. And again, I, I came to a point in my life where uh, a particular event happened to me in grade seven, mm-hmm. you know, that really embarrassed me in front of my, my classmates and I was starting to like girls and uh, this teacher embarrassed me saying that uh, he knew everybody in the class was going to pass the exam except for me. You know, he says, you, Nado, I already know you're going to fail. I think he was doing that tough love thing mm. on hindsight, but at mm. the time it didn't feel like that. Right. But that was the first time that I actually went and studied and, and studied my heart out and then finally, you know, took the test with some confidence, you know, because I thought I knew the answers. Up until then, I was the lowest graded kid. Mm-hmm. And what was customary in his class is that he would ask the kid with the lowest mark to take a walk and pick up their paper the first, and that was always me. Mm. I was conditioned to believe that I was a failure, Because that's what I told myself and that's what other people told me. When I studied and I wrote that paper, again, what was customary is that he called every student, you know, the lowest grade. I wasn't called the first. I wasn't called the second. I wasn't called the 10th. I wasn't called the 15th. And now halfway through the class, the other students are looking at me with, you know, kind of wondering why I'm not getting up there. And I don't know. I'm kind of thinking, I think I did good. Three students were left. Uh, You know, everybody else had been called. 
uh, my cousin, who was a browner. You know, mm. we used to call them browners because mm-hmm. they were keeners. And uh, Giselle, you know, another one. The two of them competed for the highest grade and mm. me. Mm. Then my cousin got called. I was the second last to be called. I had oh. the second last, you know, and again, that was something that um, was a trigger in me to mm-hmm. believe that I could right. again is like I and I never looked back. Yeah. I never looked back from that experience. Yeah. So I, I guess the, the lesson there is that, uh, you know, we really must put everything we possibly can into bettering our situation and giving it a shot, you know, just moving forward. And, and once you start to believe, you know, that you can, you got to continue on that roller coaster. I appreciate you sharing that story. And if you don't mind, I'd like to add to that sure. from my own personal experience, because like you, I, I was told the same thing. And, uh, beyond, and even beyond that, uh, I was evaluated professionally along with my brother as uh, being uh, pretty dumb. We were not going to amount to anything. That's what I remember from this whole situation. And I remember, uh, and I was only in about grade three at the time. So uh, I failed grade three. Uh, and we weren't given any of that support or, you know, and it wasn't our family. I'm not blaming the family or anything like that. But in hindsight, um, you know, I'm sure there were things that might have happened that, that sho- showed to be positive, but I wasn't, but I didn't relate to any of that. For me, it took, it took a much longer time um, I- until I was, uh, you know, in my uh, young adult and, uh, and I was talking with someone and uh, I never thought again. I thought I was stupid. I wasn't going to amount to anything. And I was speaking with someone, and they revealed in the conversation, we were having this really nice conversation, that they were a university graduate. You know, and that's what they'd learned from their university education. And I was completely dumbfounded. I, I stepped back going, why is this person talking to me? I don't get it. Why, he, I'm stupid. I, I, why is he talking to me? And it was that situation that woke me up to say, I don't get it. And I went to get some help from my doctor to say, I don't, you know, I told him the situation, what I just told you. And he says, David, I don't think you're stupid. And he sent me to, to see a professional, another professional. Yeah. Um, but this time, that person helped turn my life around and get me started to believe in myself and get that, you know, we talked about that belief and get that crack open. Yes. And, and that's where that started. But you see, I, I just wanted to, to point that out because for you, it was grade seven. For me, it was a lot longer and so I want to say to people don't don't think that it has to happen early you don't know when that's going to happen don't give up on yourself because it can happen at any time and you don't know where or when that will happen no you are so right it can happen at any time for anyone and uh, I thank you very much for sharing that experience with me because uh, we hadn't talked about that mm-hmm. on the first show but mm-hmm. um, you know I again yeah yours came a little later but it was an event that reminded you that uh, you know hey wait a minute, maybe there is something more to me, mm-hmm. you know, than meets the eye here. Mm-hmm. And the, pr- the thing is, is that we, we condition ourselves for failure, don't we? Or mm-hmm. other people, mm-hmm. you know, when they say hurtful things to us or they, they tell us that we're not going to amount, we start to believe that, that you know, or, or you have to have this perfect body and you start to, you know, to feel guilty that you don't or whatever. So you condition yourself for failure. You know, if somebody like he was an unintentional light, yeah, you know, to right. you. But again, he got through, right. you know, to, to something deep inside you mm. and you let it burn. Mm. You let it burn within you mm. where, where you did something about it. You made inquiries, you mm-hmm. know, hey, I don't have to be here. Mm. No, you don't. Right. You know, uh, who was it? Theodora Roosevelt said that if you find yourself going through hell, 
keep going. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so don't stop. You know, right. don't stop and walk. <laughs> You'll go right through the other side and come out <laughs> to the light. <laughs> That's it. And sometimes our life can be hell. Keep going through because mm. you know, there there is something on the other end of this if only you look for it and you mm. reach for it, mm. you know, and, and reach for it is the important thing. Paul, it's been a pleasure having you on the show once again. It's Thank really you. been great, and I look forward to, to your next uh, your next time on the show as we move forward in this. Thank you. And uh, I want to let everyone know, if you're intrigued by what you heard here today, you can get a hold of Paul on his website at jpaulnadeau, and that's uh, j-p-a-u-l-n-a-d-e-a-u.com. That's one way to reach him. Uh, he's available on Twitter as well, at Paul Nadeau, and on Instagram as well. And uh, so you can find him on all of those uh, social media areas. And uh, you can pick up his book if you're interested. Uh, It is called Take Control of Your Life, as we mentioned earlier. And uh, we certainly do hope that everyone takes control of their life. And Paul, you're also out there making public speeches and and doing that circuit as well. You're you're doing those those kind of things. You, where can people find you? Um, you know, people can find me online, as you said. There, I have a new website, and it's simply paulnado.com. Okay. Yeah, p a u l n a d e a u dot com. Okay. But uh, yeah, searching uh, you know the the internet, you can find me. And uh, my passion really now is helping people deal with uh, you know um, their mental health mm. and, and to support people, and mm. that's one of my great passions and. I hope to have a radio show like you one day there, David, you know. So anybody out there looking for a new radio host, that would be me. <laughs> but okay. thank you for sharing your stories with me too, David. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show, Paul. And that is, uh, as we mentioned, that's Paul Nadeau, Take Control of Your Life is his book. And that is your show for today here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. We uh, look forward to having you back next time when we have more exciting stuff uh, always here on the show. Uh, until then, I say, onigiha.